Stephen Vollmer is a fire captain in San Bernardino, California. He fights wildfires. He's on a team of analysts who pour over data and try to figure out what a fire will do next. We definitely get uh, teased a little bit as being kind of the nerds of the incident management teams. Stephen's a wildfire veteran. He's been doing this for over two decades. And in that time, he's noticed that fires are changing. When I started back in um, the late 90s, you know, it was extremely common to have people say, oh, you know, if, you're, if you get to a 100,000-acre fire, you know, that's a career event fire. You're never going to see that again in your career. And now, really, we're seeing 100,000-acre fires every week. Wildfires have burned more than 5 million acres in the U.S. this year. Almost 2 million of those acres have been in Stevens' home state of California. In California, the Tamarack Fire has forced the evacuation of at least a half dozen communities. A tough night for crews battling the Dixie Fire. The massive blaze burned more than 23,000 acres in the last 24 hours and has now destroyed an area three times the size of the city of Los Angeles. The increase in extreme fires over the past few years has pushed researchers at the Forest Service to try and figure out new ways to take on these blazes. And they've come up with a tool inspired by, of all things, sports. They call it Moneyball for Fire. The idea dawned on them that if sports analytics could sort of dictate how teams made decisions based on data and probability, then why couldn't the same be done for firefighting? Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, September 17th. Coming up on the show, how computer modeling is racing to keep up with intensifying wildfires. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. Last month, our colleague Dan Frosch went to see a firefighting operation in action. He traveled to an area near Bozeman, Montana, where firefighters were taking on several blazes. We decided to embed with a team of firefighters in Montana. Uh, This is called a Type 1 team, which is a team that handles the most serious forest fires. And they had been called in because these fires had become increasingly Uh, difficult to contain and control, uh, and were raging through ranch land in the Big Belt, Little Belt, and Crazy Mountains. These firefighting operations are sprawling and complex. I'd never been to a fire camp before, and it really is quite an operation. In this particular case, there were several hundred firefighters and support staff who were camped on what I believe were the county fairgrounds outside of White Sulphur Springs. So there was this sprawling, almost a tent city of sorts. And and it was really sort of of an astonishing operation. 
And when it comes to fighting the fires themselves, these crews have tough decisions to make. You have to figure out where you're going to deploy your firefighters in a place that is safe and where they can be easily extracted if something were to go wrong. Uh, You have to figure out where to try to control the fire as opposed to letting it burn. And you also have to figure out places where it will have the most impact. So those are just some of the decisions uh, that firefighters are faced with in in an incredibly dynamic environment. Until recently, firefighters relied primarily on their experience with past fires to make decisions. They relied on their memories. Forest firefighters use uh, something called a slide deck. And it's a, it's a term that is just sort of a, a, almost a snapshot of their memories, uh, nothing really written down uh, in terms of how they fought fires in the past. And, and they... Huh. And they, they refer to their own memories as slide decks? They, they do, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to start using that. Yeah. And, and they intuit <laughs> where to fight fires from those experiences. But as fires have become bigger and more unpredictable, firefighters have been looking for tools that are more precise. And that's what led them to this new concept, Moneyball for Fire. What, what is Moneyball for Fire? <sighs> Moneyball for Fire takes its name from the uh, Michael Lewis book uh, that was based on the Oakland A's um, 2002 season. That year, the team's manager, Billy Bean, had a limited budget and lost some star players. So he came up with an idea that was radical in the world of baseball to rely far more on statistics and not simply the intuition of scouts to choose his players. And it worked. That year, the team had the best record in the American League. And the idea would revolutionize not just baseball, but also a number of professional sports. The essence of Moneyball in sports was to use data to figure out how to deploy limited resources in the most efficient way possible. And in 2017, two Forest Service researchers wondered, why couldn't the same approach work for fires? What if we used the same analytics that general managers like Billy Bean with the Oakland A's and Daryl Morey with the Houston Rockets are using, and they created what has been uh, sort of colloquially known within the Forest Service as Moneyball for Fire. How can you even build a predictive model for fires? Because I imagine you can't go back and look at past fires in the same way the Houston Rockets can go back and look at past games. Well, you actually can. Not only can you look at past fires, but you can look at what a particular fire has been doing in recent days. I mean, let's remember, fires. these fires last for weeks, sometimes months. So in, in essence, each day could be analogous to a game. And if the fire is moving in a particular way on one day, they can build a model off of that behavior. The researchers built computer programs that combined as many data sources as they could. Weather forecasts, records of past fires, vegetation maps, topography, to try and predict where a fire might go next and help fire commanders decide where to put their resources. Firefighters have been making fire models for years, but these new models were more accurate and produced results a lot faster. Did this new Moneyball for Fire model catch on quickly among firefighters, or did these researchers have to go out and sell it? They had to go out and sell it. It, Firefighters had been doing things a particular way for a long period of time, and here were these guys coming in saying, hey, we got these fancy maps for you. 
and we're going to give you a bunch of data. And instead of relying on your old experience, why don't you take our data and use that instead? And for some firefighters, that was a tough, tough thing to hear. And so the researchers really tried to convey to the firefighters, hey, we're not here to supplant your experience with something totally different. We want to help inform your experience with what the data is saying. And if you see something out in the field that looks totally different, tell us and we'll plug that into our model. And our two modes of doing things can, can inform each other. And after a while, it started to catch on because the models, by and large, were, were accurate. A couple weeks ago at that fire camp in Montana, Dan saw how Moneyball for Fire worked firsthand. He was shadowing another Dan, a fire commander named Dan Dallas. Dan is a supervisor for the Rio Grande National Forest in Colorado. Um, he's uh, this big, hulking, six foot eight guy, and he has really embraced the use of these models. The models Dan Dallas was looking at produced color-coded maps and gave different probabilities for where the fires were most likely to spread. And he would look at these models and he could say, all right, well, we don't want to put our crews here because it's going to be impossible to extract them if something goes wrong, according to these models. And we don't want to put our crews here, even though it looks like the fire is burning extremely hot and heavy in this area because the terrain is so rugged, it's going to be very hard to really uh, make an impact on our fire in this area. So let's figure out the area that the models say well, there's an 80 or 90 or 75% chance of controlling the fire at this particular point, And let's use this area as a means of deploying our resources. And how well did the models work? The models were highly accurate uh, in terms of showing Dan Dallas uh, where the fire was going to spread. So he could, in essence, get out ahead of the fire and figure out the best place to keep it from... Uh, destroying more ranch land and creeping closer to White Sulphur Springs, which is the, the populated area there. Successes like the one Dan witnessed in Montana have convinced more crews to adopt Moneyball for Fire. Firefighters have used the models on more than 90 fires this year. But now, fires are becoming so extreme that they're pushing these Moneyball models to their limits. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. The Forest Service developed Moneyball for Fire as a way to solve a problem. Fires were getting bigger, harder to predict, and therefore more difficult to fight. Dan says there's a few reasons for this. For one, the West has been in the grips of a 20-year drought, uh, which is made conditions 
akin to a tinderbox uh, for fires. And then you have a you know, decades-long strategy of fire suppression uh, that the Forest Service and other federal agencies once used, which is now looked on as having been counterproductive. And that entailed trying to extinguish every fire that burned, as opposed to maybe letting fires burn in some areas uh, and naturally uh, thin out some of the vegetation. And then, of course, you have climate change, which is creating these extreme weather events, which uh, we've seen throughout the course of this year. And all of those factors come together to create this uh, confluence uh, that has led to some of the most extreme fire conditions we've ever seen. Those extreme conditions are already testing these new fire models. Stephen Vollmer, the fire captain you heard from at the start of the show who was out in California, saw this firsthand just a few weeks ago. Stephen was in Southern California, trying to predict where the Caldor fire was heading. It was a 219,000-acre megafire burning east in the direction of Lake Tahoe. The fight against the Caldor wildfire is now at a critical stage on the outskirts of Lake Tahoe. Surrounding counties are ordering more mandatory evacuations. Stephen was in a trailer 40 miles away, crunching the data and looking at different scenarios for how the fire might play out. The fire was blazing toward a large granite ridge. Stephen's model gave him a few scenarios for what might happen next. One scenario showed the granite ridge stopping the fire in its tracks. But another showed the fire jumping over the ridge and tearing toward the resort town of South Lake Tahoe. No fire on record had ever made this jump, and Stephen didn't think it was very likely. But on August 30th, that's exactly what the fire did. In between the granite, there were just kind of green stringers of brush and trees, and it would creep through those trees until it got hot enough and uh, dry enough, and then it would start torching those trees off. And so even in the granite, it was really providing us um, difficult control efforts through there where normally uh, we wouldn't have any problem at all. After doing the improbable, the fire burned north and threatened the resort town. Stephen had to react quickly. He needed to recalibrate his model to account for the unprecedented way the fire was moving. We basically have to restart and recalibrate uh, all the computer models again to mimic what the fire is actually doing on that day. And so we're constantly tweaking the, the models in order to get the best output. After tweaking the models, Stephen was able to get more accurate predictions, which helped crews get the fire under control. Now, while the Caldor fire is still burning, it's mostly contained, and South Lake Tahoe residents have been encouraged to go back to their homes. Here's Dan again. So the Caldor is a fascinating example of where you had a fire both outpace the model, but with a quick recalibration, the models could also be used in really this emergent case to direct crews to protect uh, a community that was right in the fire's path in a particular location where it looked like the fire was going to spread. Where do you think we would be if it weren't for these models? You know, that's a good question. I, um, I think at a fundamental level, these firefighters are safer because of the models. Um, the models are able to show the most dangerous areas of a fire and the most dangerous areas to deploy firefighters. You know, where they are limited... And where we've seen them become limited is that the fires are sort of roaring across areas that the models aren't predicting. 
um, and that fires have never uh, been able to cross before. I think the fact that these models are so cutting edge and still at times being defied, I think shows how uh, precarious the situation we're in in the West right now. That's all for today, Friday, September 17th. Special thanks to Jim Carlton for his reporting in this story. And don't forget, on Saturday, we're dropping two more episodes of The Facebook Files. Part three. It wasn't just one small piece of an operation that would be, say, like, you know, trying to recruit people. Kind of the entire ecosystem of of a human trafficking ring could exist on Facebook. And part four. So people inside Facebook started to notice that this was effectively highlighting the very worst kind of content. Stuff that was divisive, really negative, and just kind of represented the worst parts of humanity. You'll find those episodes here in the journal feed. The journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. The show's produced by Priscilla Alabi, Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Martin Kessler, Brendan Klinkenberg, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nivesky, Enrique Perez de la Rosa, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Matthew Sherman, Matthew Schiltz, Kayla Stokes, and Annie Rose Strasser. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner, Nathan Singapak, and Sam Baer, with help from Katherine Anderson. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Peter Leonard, Billy Libby, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. See you Saturday.